0: Hi, welcome to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast, a weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I am Lee Campbell-Taylor, the interim pastor here, and Covenant Presbyterian Church is an open, affirming congregation, and we're so glad you found us. Our primary mission is to equip God's people to serve Christ in the world. In our weekly messages, we hope that you'll find inspiration, encouragement, and even challenge for your faith journey. Please listen with us now. I
1: don't know whether you noticed, but we didn't do today's first scripture reading in quite the style I assume it is usually done here. For one thing, we played with geography rather than standing behind the pulpit to read the different, from the different parts, uh, rather, than we, we, rather than stand behind the pulpit to read, we read it from different parts of the sanctuary. For another, we didn't read the passage in the order it's been printed in in our Bibles. Instead, we shifted back and forth between different verses of the first chapter of Genesis. Day one was followed by day four, day two was followed by day five, day three by day six, and then the seventh day had its own special place. Now, unsurprisingly, we had a reason to mess with both space and time when we read this first scripture reading. We wanted to show some parallels that can get hidden when we just read from verse 1 straight through to verse 31, namely the connection between the creation of light and dark on the first day and the creation of sun and moon on the fourth. The connection between the creation of sky above and waters below on the second day and the creation of animals that live in the sky and the waters on the fifth. The connection between the creation of dry land and vegetation on day three and the creation of things that live on that land, including us human beings, on day six. The first three days of creation over on this side set the conditions for populating the various parts of that creation in the next three days. And day seven, much like the cheese in the farmer in the dell, stands alone. The holiness of Sabbath sets it apart. Perhaps that clears up the rather peculiar way we ordered these verses we read from Genesis. But why read the story from all over the sanctuary? I mean, we could have just read those verses right here, behind the pulpit, right? Well, Following the insights of my colleague, Bill Brown, the William Marcellus McPheeters Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary, a man so wise in the ways of Hebrew scripture that he needs a long, ungainly title just to name his position. Following the insights of my colleague, I want to suggest that the writer of the first creation story in Genesis is trying to do something more than describe the conditions for flourishing on the first three days and the things that flourish on the next three. Professor Brown begins by noting that the writer of these first verses of the Hebrew Scriptures has a deep interest in the religious rituals that constitute the liturgical life of the Hebrew people, as they are described in other parts of the Bible. An interest that goes so deep, in fact, that contemporary scholars refer to the writer of the first creation story as P, which stands for the priestly writer. The writers of the other parts of the first five books of the Bible have other interests, but the priestly writer spills most of his ink describing the proper religious practices of the Hebrew people. And one of the things that Professor Brown has noted about the way that the priestly writer describes the creation story in Genesis 1 is that the geography of creation that the priestly writer draws for us at that beginning maps pretty clearly onto the geography of the temple that that same writer describes in some detail later in scriptures. Try this then. Imagine the lines between the places where Lee and I just read this mixed up first chapter of Genesis. Two parallel lines, one from the back, uh, two parallel lines moving from front to back up the aisles toward the front of the church. And then three parallel lines moving across the aisles, one at the back, one in the middle, and one in the front that run perpendicular to those two. And then at the very front, two more lines beginning from either side at the bottom here that converge at a point at the center behind the table. You got that image in your head? That image, Professor Brown notes, is roughly what a map of the temple would look like. A fairly open space in the back that many people could populate, a more restricted space in the middle that we ought to think uh, um, that only select people could enter, an even more restricted space near the front that only priests could enter, and a space for the Holy of Holies where the presence of God resides to correspond with day seven, the holiest of days. So when the writer of that first chapter of Genesis, that first story of creation in Genesis, orders things the way he does, he isn't providing a chronology so much as a map, not offering a story about how things happen so much as an implicit claim that we ought to think about the whole of creation, as a kind of cosmic temple. All of creation is God's home, the priestly writer is telling us. And because of that, we should see God's presence everywhere we go. The English writer Elizabeth Barrett Browning captured this idea well in her book of poems, Aurora Lay. She writes, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush a fire with God, but only he he who sees it takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. It's beautiful language. I'm going to repeat it. Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees it takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. To judge from the contemporary state of things, it appears we are wandering around the temple in hobnailed boots and mouths smeared with blackberry residue. Air pollution is the fourth leading cause of death in the world. A third of food intended for human consumption goes to waste and as it decomposes causes environmental harm. Animal species populations, birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, those things from day five and day six, their populations have diminished, sometimes by over two-thirds in the last 50 years. And we're at somewhere around 100 times the natural background extinction rate for all species. There's more carbon dioxide in the air than at any point in the last 800,000 years which combined with other greenhouse gases has led to more massive droughts, floods, fires, and storms than at any point in recorded human history. Melting ice caps could raise sea levels by as much as six feet before someone born today is likely to die, which rising seas would displace perhaps half a billion people. And since I started preaching this sermon about seven minutes ago, we've lost the equivalent of 140 football fields worth of trees. It is hard to think of a term more appropriate than desecration to describe our impact on this temple that God has created. Especially as we feel the impact of our interactions with the non-human natural world in the shape of the COVID-19 pandemic, It is moreover hard to recognize that all of these impacts on the natural world impact human beings as well. They lead to the loss of indigenous cultures and increasing amounts of economic and political instability and violence around the world. Just this week, the Department of Homeland Security and Defense, as well as the National Security Council and the Director of National Intelligence, issued a series of reports about the impact of climate change on national security arguing that climate change and its impacts will force already economically weak countries to go further into debt, threaten even stronger economies, exacerbate food insecurity, drive the migration of hundreds of millions of people, mandate enormous expenditures to move low-lying military bases, amplify competition among nations for scarce resources, and function as a threat multiplier around the world. This did not come from the Sierra Club. It came from the US military. A week from today, COP26, the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference, will begin meeting in Glasgow, Scotland. Scientists, activists, and policymakers from around the world are gathering to have conversations and create policies not to prevent global warming and the catastrophic effects it will have around the world at this point, so much as to create policies that will hopefully mitigate some of the worst of its possible effects. And relatively new to those conversations will be the growing recognition that what happens in the non-human natural world impacts the human world as well. Yet even in the midst of the debates in Glasgow, the result of which will shape ours and our children's and grandchildren's futures, we will continue to marvel at the phenomenal powers we have developed in harnessing energy and raw materials and turning them into the things we use to make our lives more comfortable. Our New Testament reading comes from the book of Mark the first eight chapters of the 13th verse. Continue to listen for God's Word. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When He was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this be and what, what are the signs that that's all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars, And rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes and famines in various places. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs." When he was sitting at the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked Him privately, tell us, when will this be and what will be the sign that all these things are to be accomplished? I mean, having seen the magnificence of the temple in Jerusalem and having heard Jesus foretell its destruction, a few disciples come asking for signs. And the signs Jesus tells them to look for, nation rising up against nation, kingdom rising up against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, a mix of political and environmental catastrophes. Sometimes these texts get interpreted as some type of secret prophecy, a kind of code language that true believers use to know when the end times will arise. That though really isn't Mark's point. After all, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome within half a decade of Mark's writing of the gospel. Mark's point, a point I think we may all be feeling ever more acutely today, is that when the temple gets desecrated, that desecration is felt in both the political and the natural world. When the temple gets desecrated, the impact of that desecration reverberates outward like a shock wave affecting everything in its path when God's good creation is turned into a trash heap, when the waters God parted on the second day are poisoned, when the creatures God created on the fifth day and the sixth day are made extinct, when the human beings God created to care for the earth confuse being stewards of creation with abusing it. When these things happen, it will not only be felt in remote corners of the world or only among a few exotic species. It will be felt everywhere, by everything. This is the impact of acting as if we do not live in one small part of God's cosmic temple. And what are we to do when we see signs in both the political and natural world that, like those that Jesus points to? Well, there are many things we can and should do. Reduce, reuse, recycle wean ourselves rapidly from fossil fuels and grow a greener economy. And here I'd note that if the U.S. subsidized renewable energy at anywhere close to the level it subsidized fossil fuels, we'd be well on our way towards such an economy. Listen first to the scientists and to those who will be most harmed by environmental destruction. Promote regulatory systems that make polluters pay for their waste rather than taxpayers. Vote for political candidates who take the seriousness of our times seriously and care about our future enough to drive policy changes in the present. But above all that, beyond all that, perhaps the best thing that we can do is implied in the very idea that God was creating a cosmic temple when God created the heavens and the earth. We can orient our lives around worship. Temples, after all, are places for worship. What would it mean then to ask of ourselves at each occasion we are tempted to buy what we don't need, to throw away something rather than to recycle it, to ignore our complicity in the plight of a climate refugee just because she doesn't live in our neighborhood, or devote our pocketbooks rather than our children's futures. When in short, we are tempted to do anything that treats God's good creation as municipal dump rather than site of worship. What would it mean if we asked ourselves, is this something I can understand as an act of worship directed to the triune God who created all things good, who redeems all things in cross and resurrection, and who promises to restore all things to the goodness for which they were created? can I treat what I am doing as an act of worship? If we keep that question in mind, perhaps we might shape the kind of creation ethic that God invites us into on that sixth day, and then reminded us that we could trust in God rather than our own devices on the seventh. What we do here in this sanctuary and now between 11 and noon on Sundays. It's just practice for what God invites us to do with the rest of the week. The way we think about Sunday as as Sabbath, it's just a reminder that constantly going and building and buying and using costs more than we can stand to pay. What happens at this table is just a reminder that we are nourished by the grace of God far more than we are fed by the sweat of our brow. What happens at the offering we're about to take up is just a reminder that we are invited to take what has been given and turn it toward its proper use in the kingdom of God. What happens when we sing and pray together? We remember that we are not audiences to be entertained, but performers in a great celestial drama of praise. What then is our first response to the environmental and political calamities unfolding around us? It is the same response we have been invited to give since the dawn of creation, to worship with gladness in the temple of God. Of such is true and lasting environmental ethic formed. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Covenant Presbyterian Church podcast. I invite you to visit our website, covpresatl.org. That's C-O-V-P-R-E-S-A-T-L dot There you'll find current worship information, links to our live Sunday morning streaming service, and our full archive of recorded services. You'll also find out more about us and how to get in touch. I wish you well in these strange times. God is with us, grace and peace to you.